Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining the Rooted Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Panetta, and we are happy that you're joining us. As always, we're downtown in Salem, Oregon, home of Groundwork and Leadership Institute. Now, Groundwork, there's a lot to say about our Leadership Institute. And if you're interested in learning more, please stay tuned for the end of the episode. I'll break down what it is that we're doing and, and why we're doing it. And you can learn more there, or you can always visit our website at groundworkleadership.org. But first and foremost, I already mentioned, we just want to welcome you again. This podcast was meant for leaders in the beginning. So we welcome leaders, but we also welcome non-leaders and we welcome anyone. It turns out that as we start talking about leadership, that we end up talking about home and family and not just our professional world, but our community. And so there's really something for everyone in this podcast. And so it doesn't matter if you feel like a leader or if you have the title of leader, please stay tuned uh, and enjoy our show and listen to our other episodes. We talk about an array of different things. And so we're just happy that you're tuning in. So let me introduce our guest. Uh, She's a dear friend of mine. She's been in the community for a long time. Uh, She's done some great work here over the years. One of the first leaders that I met when I moved here, and I was immediately impressed by her. I think that she is very intelligent. Uh, She's got a lot of courage and strength in how she leads, but also a lot of love and understanding and empathy. And so I really admire her for all of those reasons. Every time she speaks, the way she articulates, uh, people listen. And you'll get to experience that today uh, as she joins us. She's going to join us on Zoom. And so before I get her on Zoom and our co-host, Salam Noor, let me just share a few accolades about Allison Kelly. She's the CEO currently of Liberty House, and I'll let her share a little bit more about what Liberty House does and why they do it. But she's also a board member and past chair of the Oregon Child Abuse Solutions. That's the OCAS statewide board. So she's a member of the local public safety coordinating councils for both Marion and Polk County. She's, and she's the recipient of the inaugural Force for Good Award given by the OCAS. That was in 2019 for going above and beyond to strengthen awareness uh, specifically for children. So those are just accolades on paper, but ultimately just the person that she is is, is, is amazing. And so we're going to get her on right now, like I mentioned. So give me one second and her and Salam will be joining us. Thanks for tuning in to the Rooted Leadership Podcast. Before our guest joins, you can catch more episodes, leadership tips, and community stories by following us on Facebook at Groundwork Leadership, on Twitter at Groundwork Salem, or on our website at groundworkleadership.org. All right, uh, we are back. We have Allison and Salam on the line. Allison, Salam, thanks for joining. Go ahead and say hi. Hey, hey Chris. Thank you, for, thank you for having me. Yeah. Hi, Allison. Hi, Salam. Yeah, always a pleasure when we have our co-host Salam on, and obviously we love our guests. They become they become the bread and butter of these episodes, and why all of you uh, keep listening. So uh, welcome, and Allison. I mentioned to you before we started to record. You know, I I gave you a a pretty thorough introduction, mostly you know f- from a personal standpoint. But I'll tell you, I, I said a lot of nice things about you, and I believe all of them. But I'll I'll just leave it at this: is I I really I deeply admire you, and so I'm happy that you can join uh, the show and that we can learn uh, more from you today. Uh, and I mentioned. You know, I mentioned uh, where you work. You're the CEO of Liberty House, 
And so go ahead and share with us anything else that you want to share as an introduction. You know, I think that our listeners love to to hear about you as as a person and and what makes you tick and and you can maybe segue that into what you do here in the community and some of the great work that that you're in, involved in. Yeah, well thank you, Chris, and thanks for all the kind words. Um it's it's neat because I remember the year you came to our community and that feeling of just clicking with you right off the bat. And I appreciate how our friendship has grown and also, you know, friendship with you, Salam. It's been awesome. So yeah, so I've lived in our community since 1988. My husband and I raised four girls and all through the Salem Kaiser School District and they went on to have really successful college careers and and um are now successful in their lives. So it's kind of a privilege. I've seen a lot of changes in our community and certainly in our society over the years. And um, so we're not only empty nesters from kids, but we're empty nesters from pets. So we don't even, we have one cat right now and, Mm -hmm. and that's a switch. We used to have horses and dogs and all the things. So anyway, but I was invited to join the team at Liberty House over seven years ago to become their next CEO. And at the time, the board of directors was looking for somebody who could help Liberty House go to the next level. And that's what they said in the interviews. And I said, well, what's the next level? And they said, we don't know. We need you to help us figure that out. So it was really a a relationship of trust from the get-go. And our mission is to have excellence in the assessment and the treatment and the prevention of child abuse, neglect, and trauma and grief so that we can promote health and hope in children, youth, families, and communities. And the way we do that is by hosting a full um, specialty pediatric clinic where all of our medical providers and forensic interviewers are specially trained in creating safety for children who have been referred for concerns of abuse or neglect. Our job is not to advocate so much as just to listen, to provide a neutral and objective and a safe space for children to describe things that they've been through. And, you know, it's a very sensitive topic. It's not an easy topic. I think when we think about child maltreatment, it kind of is a manifestation of the darker side of who we can become as human beings. Mm -hmm. And it's also very rough on the kids. Mm -hmm. You know, when, when things don't go well, they can develop really big feelings of guilt and shame and fear and hypervigilance and they can also feel really um prohibited from living the kind of life that they want to live so the first thing that we do is provide them a place of safety to describe their experience to trained professionals and then our medical providers provide a diagnosis and our uh, therapy department which is amazing they're called hope and wellness we have nine therapists um can provide that trauma-focused therapy to help children get to a place where that abuse doesn't have to hold them back. So it's a, it's a really special mission. And we like to be able to provide a lot of positive things for children who have not experienced those. Yeah, that's a, a great um, intro into, into yourself and, and Liberty House. There's a lot packed in there. But as you were, you were talking, you know, a couple of things come to mind. One is, you know, the huge need for for organizations like Liberty House in our community, but also the the heaviness of of the work. It's obviously, like you said, it's you know, it, a lot of people uh, 
don't want to talk about it or even realize that it's there, that it's in our community. So it's heavy work. And, you know, having spent some time with you and some of your, your team, you know, I, I definitely uh, understand um, the importance of what they do and, and the heaviness. But, you know, what, what caught my attention was, you know, you said over seven years ago when you were asked to, to become the CEO of, of Liberty House, um, they asked you to bring it to the next level. Obviously, you, you know, back then you knew what Liberty House was and what they did. And knowing, um, knowing the, the importance of an organization like that, but also, you know, the, the heavy work that they're engaged in. What was, what was going on in your mind, especially as they asked you, hey, bring it to the next level? What did you start to envision as the next level? That is a great question. Well, you know, um, I had learned from a lot of prior professional experience that when you're an organization serving a community and you have a lot of stakeholders, the most important thing you can do is listen to your stakeholders. So one of the first things we did, I talked with our board of directors and our staff about launching a community survey. And if they'd ever done it, they hadn't done it for a long time. So we reached out to a lot of people in our community and we asked three questions. We said, what do you think of Liberty House? What are we doing well? And what do you think we should be doing? What would you like to see us do? And three themes emerged almost immediately um, consistent across all the responses. And one theme was, you know, you guys do really valuable work. Um, the second theme is you really need to offer more appointments and more appointments more rapidly because in those days it would be frequent for a child not to be able to have an appointment here for two or three weeks just because our facilities didn't allow for us to see that many kids. And the third thing, we got overwhelming encouragement to start a therapy program. So and my response to that was like, okay, how do you do that? So I got educated and we reached out to all of our community therapists because we really were sensitive. We didn't want it to appear like Liberty House was starting a project that would impinge on their turf. And so I convened three major meetings with probably 30 to 40 therapists um, throughout our community. And we just asked, we asked, mm. how are you doing? And do you feel like it would be beneficial for Liberty House to start this program? And those meetings were really magic because to a person, they said, oh my goodness, there's such a lack of good mental health services. That would be wonderful if you could. So we were able to sort of be invited by the therapy community to launch our program. And it was really, that was a very special. So with that, we just kept getting educated and, and reaching out. We finally were very lucky to um, have a positive response from Nita Grant, who'd been a longtime therapist in our community. And she was willing to take a risk and join our team here and, and launch a program. And she's just been amazing. Now we have nine therapists and serve hundreds of children a year. And also because family trauma can be generational, it can be inherited and Many, many parents have experienced very difficult things that they may have never said anything to anybody about. We asked the board of directors two and a half years ago whether they would permit us to open up therapy services for adult survivors of childhood trauma, because that's really where the science is leading us. And the board agreed to do that. So now we have two therapists on our team who treat adult survivors. Mm -hmm. And so if a child is coming in for therapy, their parent or caregiver can have an appointment at the same time usually is the way we work it. So it's really just a joy to have all these services where you can heal the whole family. Yeah. Um, I want to mention uh, one quick thing I failed to in the, in the intro, but Allison is a alumni of our Groundwork Institute. 
And so everything that you're mentioning there, you know, sounds like soil. And so, you know, for us here on the call, that resonates. But I love what you just mentioned. And I I have to share this because one of the recent episodes that we recorded um, uh, just a few, I think maybe three weeks ago was with uh, Amelia Frank uh, Meyer. And you might remember her. She spoke at that event we had a couple of years ago um, uh, and and some of the indicators in, in the neighborhoods that we were engaging with um, in the east part of town was foster care. And she's she's been a child advocate for, for uh, the uh, child welfare system for many years. But on the episode, she actually talks about how her perspectives changed quite a bit to where she's realized, you know, now that, uh, you know, for her whole career, saving the kids was always, it was exhilarating and she still has a big heart for that, but she's moved to more, you know, if we really love our kids, we need to love the, their parents, um, especially when it's hard to love their parents, because, you know, in society, we will categorize parents that uh, people that are worthy of, of, of our love and worthy of, of, of our mercy. And then those that are not, and she said, it's the ones that are not that need the most help. And like you said, it's generational. And and so I, I you know when you were talking and I love that you're you're offering that that therapy for for parents and for for adults because you know one thing that stuck out to me was if we love our kids we need to love their parents. Um, so again, just thanks to to what you're you're engaged in and 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 doing in our community and and I'm sure that so much of what you're doing there and things that you've learned along the way will be relevant to you know all of our conversation um, today. Well. You know, and you mentioned something, Chris, earlier about it being kind of heavy. I think the burden of having been harmed at the hands of somebody else can be heavy. Mm-hmm. I think the burden of having been told to keep a secret can be oppressively heavy. And the beauty of the model that we have, which is a research-based nationwide model that in our clinic, we provide children as much time as they need to feel safe and comfortable. And it's a very trauma-focused, trauma-informed model. Um, That is instrumental in creating a sense of safety. And when children feel safe, they will be more likely to be able to describe what they've experienced. And that is a way of opening up the valve to release the pressure of that heaviness. And, you know, in therapy, a very common thing to learn is that if you can name your feeling, you can begin to take control over that feeling and not let that feeling have um, control over you. I think even Mr. Rogers said that if you can name it, you can tame it. Mm -hmm. And um, so the burdens are heavy, but the enormous weight that is lifted from children's shoulders once they're able to have somebody else walk that path with them and the incredible healing stories that come out of our therapy department every year, every week, it's just amazing. So we really are in the business of creating light of lightening people's burdens and helping them to have hope, helping them have confidence in their future. I have one, I have one more awesome. thought. One more thought, and then I want to give Salam. I know he Salam has probably some thoughts and questions, but I love this idea of beauty that you said because you you know you mentioned the heavy parts of of the work that you're involved in and that your team's involved in, um, which is which is heavy. You know, those things that you mentioned are they're not easy to talk about. They're not even easy to think about. Um, and for anybody who's ex- who's experienced anything along that spectrum, you know, it's 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 not easy. Like you said earlier, it's some of the 
you know, the, the, the ugliest things about, you know, human beings, um, you, you all have to deal with. And, and so it's heavy, but then you said there's a beauty, you know, that comes out of it. And you spoke to that really well. You know, there's this beauty of, of change and of understanding and of compassion and empathy. And I'm just curious on your thoughts, you know, for others listening, whether they're a leader of an organization in a community or even their family, you know, when we face challenging times, no matter where it's at on the spectrum of severe to, you know, everyday challenges, how can we maintain sight of the beauty in those things? Because I feel like we've been experiencing over the last year more challenging times than maybe we're used to. And maintaining the side of beauty, um, I think, is important to our overall well-being. But what are your thoughts on that? You know, speaking uh, kind of separately from from what you mentioned at Liberty House, but to people in general yeah. that are facing challenges, how do they how do they keep sight of the beauty in it? That's a wonderful question. I would suggest that we don't get to beauty right away. I think that there is a, a pathway that starts with just facing the reality of what's in front of you and accepting the reality of what's in front of you. Um, the example of that is, you know, child maltreatment is an absolutely global problem. It's a global pandemic. And it plays out locally. And so we we accept that reality. And we put words around it. And when we have our darker emotions, when we allow ourselves to feel the pain and embrace ourselves in that pain and accept that, that's a really important step. And in that, being able to come to a place of compassion. There are many therapists, there is an emerging emerging field of self-compassion where you want to wrap yourself with the same compassion that you naturally feel like you want to give to other people, that can also be a way of healing. And if you can get to that compassion, then there is a way to develop the deeper, the next part of that, which I feel is where we get to empathy. So if I can have compassion for myself and my own pain, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm not going to minimize it. I'm not going to say it didn't happen. It did happen and it hurt and it felt bad because it was bad. And I am not going to let that hold me back from being the person I was created to be. I'm going to find that compassion for myself and I'm going to develop that and work at it so that I can give compassion to others. And in doing that, that is the thing that gives ourselves, our friends, our colleagues, our family members the ability to step in the shoes of the other people with whom we work or maybe with whom we disagree. I think that is something that is absolutely missing in our world right now is that old fashioned walk a mile in their shoes, Mm -hmm. learn how to look at the world from the perspective of somebody else. And that takes work. That's a skill that takes a lot of work to practice. It's much easier to give in to the natural anger or rage. Rage is a lot easier learning to calm and and really make that decision, whether you have a heart at war or a heart at peace, learning to have a heart at peace takes a lot of work. And when we pause and take the time to accept the reality and search for the compassion and develop the empathy for other people, the beauty that can result from that process really looks a lot like deep relationships and healing relationships and relationship is the context of 
everything who we are as a human family. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you reminded me of, uh, a couple of things and sorry, Salam, I know, <laughs> I know you have a, I know you have a question, so, um, or a thought, uh, but you know, you reminded me a couple of things. Uh, the first thing was, you know, just personally, you know, things that I've dealt with in, in, in my life and, and, uh, some of the things, some of the things we've, I've actually discussed with you, but, but one thing that you mentioned was accepting the pain and, you know, having been somebody that, uh, had, had an, had an addiction when I was younger, you know, what helped me and, you know, it was through some, some counseling and therapy that really helped me get to this point, but I, I didn't want to accept it and I didn't want to accept the pain that came along with it. And one thing that they helped me do was really accept it. Um, and, and it's hard to explain unless, you know, you've gone through something like this, but the freeing feeling that came after that was, you know, was, uh, was incredible. And, and as I was thinking of that, there's other things that you were saying about uh, understanding and developing empathy and compassion for others. And it got me thinking of a conversation that Salam and I were having the other day. Um, there's this book that I'm reading um, for my PhD right now uh, in psychology, and and uh, we were <laughs> there's the author's talking about the Greek meaning of of being well or doing well. And I'm going to slaughter the pronunciation of the Greek word, but I think it's pronounced makar- makarios, makarios. And you know, if you dig deep enough in the meaning, the whole point behind it is that I'm well when those around me are well, and so yeah. being well or doing well actually is predicated and hinge, hinges upon those around me uh, and and my impact on them, which goes to what you said of this heart of peace um, and of, you know, speaking in Arbinger's terms of seeing those around us as people. And uh, even, even in really difficult, uh, challenging times, um, you know, that's the one thing that nobody can ever take away from us, which is our ability to choose, you know, how we see. Um, so a lot to be said there, and you know I don't want to go down big big uh, tangents on on some of those things, but I just love what you're I love what you're preaching right now. I lo- absolutely love it. Um, Salam, sorry, back to you, man. I don't. I, don't no, wanna... I, I think it's it's really uh, th- thank you, Chris. It's really along the same the same lines, if you will, that Allison was sharing. Um, and I really appreciate the work that you do in this community. It's it's so important and necessary. Um, sometimes it, it's sad to recognize the reality that we have such trauma in our community, especially that trauma that affects children. And I'm just glad that there is a place where they can get focused, um, scientifically based, research-based, intentional services. What I was curious about, though, is, you know, the seeing people is a big part of that, uh, mm-hmm. if you will. Um, as a leader, um, leading a group of talented individual, your team and the various departments that you have, how do you help them um, sort of endure some of the trauma that they see and they experience every day? Um, how do you lead in that context? How do you take care of yourself? How do you help take care of them? Uh, what is the responsibility of a leader in, in that context? Because that work really tugs at our hearts and our soul, our, our soul. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes it's easy to get disillusioned, if you will. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, leading to me is synonymous with 
listening. And in our first year of groundwork, we talked extensively about listening. We talked about listening deeply. What we do when we are able to listen deeply and recognize the humanity and the person that we are with, we are counteracting everything that is dehumanizing. Think about it. There are so many things in our society that are dehumanizing. We have, as a corporate culture, for decades invested in the most violent video images that we could possibly put, and we routinely program our children, and then we wonder why we have such a violent society. We are, we are reaping what we've sown. And so when we pause and take a look at the person in front of us who we're with and really think of them as the human being that they are, if we go to empathy and try to look at whatever situation from their perspective, that's listening deeply. And that calms down the number one unspoken anxiety. Humans need to be seen and they need to be heard. And if we do that as leaders, their blood pressure will go down, their anxiety will go down because they don't have to worry that they're not getting heard. So when we talk about that, on a practical basis, you know, from an, on a day-to-day -day basis, it just takes a lot of intentional effort. And I'm the first one to admit I fail at that every day. And yet my favorite teacher of all time had an amazing saying, fall down seven times, get up eight. So even if I failed today, I'm going to come back and try again tomorrow. And then Another thing is just try to get educated. There is a whole field about trauma-informed leadership. And we are big learners. <clears throat> we have a leadership team around at Liberty House. And one of the things that we've learned from the experts in trauma-focused leadership is that organizations who serve people or children who've experienced trauma typically do better when they don't use really heavy-handed, power-based, hierarchical models and language. We talk about flattening the organizational hierarchy. So, for example, we used to call our management team level the executive team. And about two years ago, we renamed it. It's a leadership team. We used to call our managers managers. When you think about you know, some of Stephen Covey's literature, you lead people, you manage resources like pens and paper. So we don't have managers anymore. We have team leaders. We don't talk about staff. I always used to bristle when I would hear people talk about, well, staff said this. It made it seem so inanimate. We talk about employees and team members. And every single one of those represents a technique to rehumanize the people with whom we work. Um, and so I feel really grateful to have attracted, we have a number of dynamic people who work at Liberty House, both on the front lines and in leadership roles. And those of us who are leaders, you will see us out walking around the building in the morning, picking up the trash that might've gotten left the night behind the night before from somebody who was unsheltered. And I take my turn. Everybody takes their turn. It's what we do. It's how we just walk the walk. Yeah. And um, it's harder, you know, when things are tense and we don't agree. And we had a actually a situation early in the pandemic where 
there was quite a bit of science around face masks. And I wanted to see a certain thing with respect to face masks. And we were in the process of kind of relaxing our dress code because why do we need to get dressed up? Nobody's seeing anybody anyway. Um, and we did not have agreement on our leadership team about what should the components of the new face mask policy be. And for the first time in my professional life, I just let that go. I just said, right now, I don't have any answers for you because we don't have consensus. And that's okay. We are just going to face that reality because what I really want you all to feel is that you have been heard. And I don't know what to do from that. Maybe we'll just sit on it and see if a brighter, more constructive solution comes. Yeah. You, you touched on something really um, important, of course, in this, in this conversation, which is um, the rooted leadership framework. And, and you've talked about humility and um, and I want to bring it back just very quickly to the next level idea, because quite often when organizations go out and hire the next leader and when you ask uh, the board chair or somebody at the top level of the organization or the hiring committee, they say, well, we just we need a leader that's going to take us to the next level. And I appreciated what you said earlier, because quite often, 99.9% of the time, unless it's a technical function, improve this microchip or improve the efficiency of this department, we really don't know what the next level is. It's just something we, we say and we hope for the best. But you really put context to that for me, and I think it's rooted in this notion of humility because the next level is implied to be either an innovation, an enhancement, or an invention. But your approach uh, is really the best way to get at the next level, which is ask the people that will receive that service or ask the people that support that service and just having some humility to say, I don't know what that is. I really don't know what that looks like. And uh, I'm going to be vulnerable and, um, and put myself out there and ask the community what they think about what we do and how we can improve it. And it sounds like you got some really great insight that you're yeah. able to implement and really take the organization to the next level, which is, I just commend you for that because it's that humility and, and that desire aspect of the rooted leadership framework that is a big part of innovation. Um, and, and it starts with authentic, um, sincere, vulnerable leadership, or at least leadership that's willing to be vulnerable, if you will. Mm -hmm. yeah. I appreciate that. What's challenging is when you get those answers and you want to deliver and you set yourself up to deliver and then something gets in the way like a pandemic, for example. Mm -hmm. we, we have standards. We need to be able to offer certain types of appointments either the same day or the next day. And we had a period of several weeks in the late fall where um, several of our medical providers just had to be out of the office for various reasons. Um, you know, childcare, a lot of them have kids in school and things like that. And we, we kind of ended up with a little bit more of a delay and it felt kind of awful because here we are trying to preach all this stuff. This really gets us back to the whole idea of accountability and, and we weren't able to deliver. And so I think we, we got there, we're back there again, but Part of it is just learning to be a person of grace, where if you give grace to other people when they don't live up to your expectations, hopefully they'll give you grace when you can't live up to your own. Um, but I think we were talking, you know, a little bit about accountability and kind of what that means. And um, 
for me, we talked about this last year in our first groundwork year. And what I wrote down the day that we were talking about that is just that accountability is it's honesty in facing the plain fact that others may need to be able to trust and depend on my doing what I say I'm going to do. And that means I have to change. That means I have to be aware of the effect I have on others and the promises that I've made. Mm -hmm. And I think that is actually the worst thing in the world. It's a horrible feeling when you're a leader and you've made a commitment that something gets in the way of, even if it's not your fault, you still feel accountable for that. So I think that's grace is a really good thing to give to leaders and leaders to give to other people around them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad. Um, yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad you brought up uh, accountability. That was something we wanted to to pick your brain on and, and some context for that. And for our listeners, you know, we just a couple weeks ago finished our um, our leadership retreat for our new cohort this year. And, you know, if you've been listening to our show, you, you know that at Groundwork, our, our Leadership Institute, you know, leaders join and they're, they're part of this journey for an entire year. And we start the year with this this retreat. And we dive, uh, we take a deep dive into our content, which is, you know, called the rooted, the rooted content. And, and specifically in this rooted leadership handbook, uh, one of the first sections actually is the first section of soil. We talk about accountability and, you know, due to the, just how training is laid out, you can't always spend forever on one topic. And so we had to, to keep moving up. We had to keep, we had to move on. And so, you know, there was still questions about how we, we were defining it uh, together, which is good because those are the questions we want people to be wrestling with, you know, for the entire year. But we, you know, we're curious, and you and you alluded to this a little bit. If you remember, you know, in that section when you did this, it's same same this year. You know, before we even start and dive into this section, we actually call it breaking up the soil, but we're also meaning accountability. We have people define accountability what they believe it is right now. And then we go through the whole section and we have them redefine it based on what you learned. How would you redefine, how would you define soil, uh, sorry, accountability now? And that was fascinating, especially, you know, what the year that you, you did this last year with those leaders. I remember the dialogue we had about the before and after being uh, really profound because there seems to be, you know, not a confusion, but uh, figuring out how to separate when we're talking about systematic accountability within an organization, especially large organizations, their systems of accountability versus, you know, what we call the true essence of accountability as a leader, which you nailed it, is are we willing to change first? Because we, it's really easy to to live in a world and point fingers about at all the other things or people that need to change. Um, But what we push our leaders to, to truly consider is, well, before all of that, how can you change first? And, um, that's how we start. That's how accountability starts and creating a culture of accountability, um, is starts with those questions, um, that we need to ask ourselves as leaders. So that was a well, lot I think it, of synopsis, but it, yeah, go ahead and speak to that, please. Yeah, no, if I may, I think it gets really to the heart of is accountability, a burden that I place on other people or is accountability, uh, value that I'm going to nurture within myself. You know, the old language was holding others accountable, which getting back to our trauma-focused language, that's a very heavy-handed power-based way of thinking about management. Mm -hmm. And one of the most profound things that I heard in our sessions together last year was changing from that mindset to a mindset of creating accountable people. 
And so then that points us right back to look in the mirror. You know, nothing, there is no path to good leadership that doesn't involve a mirror. <laughs> and yeah. looking in the, you know, there is no path to good leadership that doesn't involve a mirror. And looking at the ways that I have let people down or continue to let people down or the ways that I really need to turn my chair around or change so that I can inspire that change in others. And in professional life, in life as a, in general, you know, all of us are wandering around every day with little stories that we're telling ourselves subconsciously. We're, they're not even conscious half the time. Just little time, you know, it's the, and, and, you know, the I'm not good enough story or the she hurt me story or, you know, all the thing or I'm bad or whatever. And, you know, a lot of leadership is coming to grips with those stories, the ones that are not real and replacing them with the ones that are real and getting to that place where other people matter like I matter. And when we then circle back to accountability, that means I'm going to do my very best for you. I'm going to do my very best for you every day. And there are going to be days when I come up short, but I'm going to give grace to myself. And there are going to be days when you come up short and I'm going to give grace to you. And that's how we lead. So circling back to that question of how do we lead an organization like Liberty House? It's We do a lot of this dialogue as leaders in our leadership team. Yeah, I'm thinking of what you said earlier about um, you know finding the beauty in things and and just the the phraseology of finding the beauty and accountability um, mm-hmm. came to mind um, mm-hmm. because it's not e- accountability isn't easy and I'm not talking again I'm not we're not talking about these systematic you know uh, these systems of accountability in our organizations where you know we're really speaking at a, a deeper the deeper comp- part of that which is people. And our our people um, being accountable, um, and it's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to be accountable uh, as as a leader because it requires, like you said, vulnerability and being willing to change. And as a leader, am I willing to change first? Uh, but mm-hmm. I think without it, you know, we're we're really setting ourselves up um, for failure, and we're we're certainly not um, cr- looking f- to create a, a, a culture of safety in an organization. And in my experience, one of the best ways that safety has been created, at least for me, is when I've had a leader that does get out in front of their own mistakes and is holding themselves accountable when they say, look, I am not being my best or I wasn't my best yesterday or whatever, whatever the situation is. They're being vulnerable, but they're also being accountable. And then it creates safety for me to realize, wow, if I make a mistake, I don't have to run from it. I don't have to hide from it. I don't have to fight it. I don't have to blame others for it. I could actually own up to it and and change. And and that to me is safety in an organization. Um, and it starts with somebody being accountable to themselves. And in, and in most cases, it should be the leader that starts that trend of being accountable to their, their flaws or their mistakes. Um, obviously, in the right way, it's not like we're just spilling our, our guts to everyone, but if we need to get out in front of a way that we can be better that has an impact on others, we should we ought to do it, and we ought to do it quickly. Uh, I love the notion of actually Chip Huth. We've had him on the show before, but one time he was talking about this idea of being our best. You know, when we're not our best, we sometimes think that we're the only ones that know it. <laughs> you know, like I don't really want to be at work today, or I, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm, 
I don't like that person, or you know, we're, maybe we're thinking things that we know we shouldn't be thinking as a leader, or we're just doing things, you know, subtle things that we know we shouldn't do, um, and we're not being our best. And he said, we like to think that it's only us that knows we're not being our best, but everyone else <laughs> knows that we're not being our best. <laughs> and so he yeah. said, all accountability is is getting out in front of it before anybody else does. You know, we're the first yeah. to get out in front of it. And I love that that idea um, about accountability. Um, but I know that you had mentioned pre-recording just the, the connection to safety. And I know I touched on that, but can you speak a little bit more about the connection of how those two things relate accountability and safety? When Meaning safe space for, for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When we aren't paying attention to the tone and the practices and the language, even the rhythm of the day in our organization, when we aren't paying attention to that, when we aren't paying attention and maybe recognizing those days when we're just not at our best and you know what, I'm going to work from home today or whatever, just because you don't need my emotional stuff. um, We risk creating tension, which can lead to fear. One of the things that I've noticed throughout these last several months uh, in dealing with our pandemic is that people with whom we work and interact, both in and outside our organization, hear things that aren't being said, and they don't hear things that are being said. I think it's a function of a a hypervigilance, a sense of emotional fatigue. And I've seen it over and over this year. And so what it means is that we're all a little bit at risk of misinterpreting something. We hear things that aren't being said. We deduce something. We sense something that's actually not there. I really just asked you if you'd pass the ketchup. We, We don't hear things that are being said. And it can really fragment a team. So accountability in some ways is kind of a piece of creating that safety when my managers around me, my team leaders and my employees around me know that I'm going to work really hard to do what I said I'm going to do to be the first one to change. That's a piece of creating safety. Compassion, being able to be very aware of the suffering or the, just the emotional landscape of another person. Empathy, being willing to step into the shoes and try to experience what that other person is feeling, those are ways to build a sense of safety. Being forgiving and giving people grace when things don't go the way we hope they'll go. And, you know, I can talk about it. I'm I'm not going to be the first one to say I'm good at this all the time. It's something I practice every single day. And, um, and so there's a little bit of humility in that, but it's possible. It is absolutely possible because when we can be in that space, we can disarm people who have gotten a little bit ramped up. We can disarm people, you know, even people that we work with and really care about who are dealing with heavy burdens of their own. And so in order to create that safety, that compassion, that empathy, you know, again, a lot of that points back to our responsibility as a leader to explore everything we can about the field of self-compassion the idea of giving yourself the love and compassion that your heart needs as well, A, so that you don't need so much of it from others, and B, so that you can give a lot of it to others. 
And even, you know, it's kind of a responsibility. There are a lot of things we ask all of our new employees. What are the things that you do to keep yourself healthy? We ask this three times in our interview processes and again, the first day of their onboarding. And we talk about how necessary it is to do really, really robust self-care, exercise, nutrition, sleep, reading, watching funny movies, being around funny people, everything you can to nurture your heart and your soul. And that's a really phenomenal way to help counteract some of the pain that we can't help but absorb throughout the work that we do. So all of those things go into creating a sense of safety. Mm -hmm. And when there's safety, if I make it safe, not only for myself when I make a mistake, but for other people, people are going to be a lot more forthcoming about, you know what? That was me. I did that. I'm really sorry. And it's what it's all about. I have a, a question actually for both of you, Salam, because I, you have a lot of experience um, leading in massive organizations with a lot of people and a lot of, you know, systems of accountability and, and same for you, uh, Allison. And so I'm, I'm just curious, you know, how does the way we're talking about accountability, which is as leaders, it starts with us, we need to be willing to, to change first. How does that in, impact these larger systems of accountability and especially when others aren't being their best? So when others need to be the ones to change. Um, how does the way we're talking about accountability impact those dynamics? Go ahead. Salam. Lots of, lots Allison's of, uh, pointing to Salam so, for that one. So that is, um, <laughs> that is a really interesting question because when I was listening to Alice, I jotted this down. In fact, you know, accountability culture slash tool. So I think a lot of it uh, depends on our definition as leaders of accountability and how we present accountability in both our behavior and conduct, as Alice, uh, as Allison talk, discussed, and also in uh, in in practice and in nonverbal ways, if if you will. So, um, I, I just had a I had a thought, and and it escapes it escaped me so i'm i'm sorry it'll it'll come back let me it'll, let me jump in and then yes. see if it comes mm -hmm. back i think your question chris about well how could all of those practices affect your accountability systems if i understood your question correctly mm -hmm. i think when people experience compassion from their leaders on a day-to-day -day basis it it doesn't mean that there are not going to be hard conversations could we talk about this i i, I had an expectation that this was going to be done by a certain time or or the worst hard conversation, which is, I'm just so sorry. I, we have tried, we've all tried to make this work, but I'm afraid this is just not the right fit for you, you know, as far as employment. Um, if we can do that and honor the humanity of the person in the moment consistently, then our systems of accountability will be strong enough and compassionate enough to buffer. Mm -hmm things that are difficult. I don't know if that, did you think? Yeah. I think you know, I come back to you what you were going to say. Go ahead, Salam. So um, just again, I, you and I have had lots of conversations about accountability and, and I really appreciate and love what Allison is saying. Um, I think a lot of it depends on uh, 
the current context and historical context too. Because traditionally, accountability has been used as a tool, as a form of measuring uh, a person's performance, uh, an employee's performance. Uh, Accountability is, is is a tool for measuring the efficiency or the effectiveness of an organization, especially in a, in a corporate structure, perhaps relative to products, deliverables, et cetera. I think we're talking about a different form of accountability, and it's much deeper than the technical components of accountability. Did you get your work done on time? Was the deliverable up to standard or up to the specifications that we discussed? Um, are you being respectful of your colleagues in the workplace? There are lots of ways to measure technical accountability, if you will. But I think we're talking about something that is much deeper. And, and I think it is grounded in this sense of seeing people. And that as a leader of an organization, I, I, I am held accountable to results or the objectives of the organization. Uh, I will hold people accountable for their roles and responsibilities and objectives in the organization. But what kind of a culture do I create that make that task a lot more humane, Mm -hmm. interpersonal, relational, and meaningful? And the phrase, you know, we're not trying to hold people accountable, we're creating a culture, or we're creating accountable people, which is essentially a culture of accountability where people see each other uh, they're all committed to the mission of the organization. They're all committed to doing their best to achieve the mission and the objectives of the organization. And we take on a completely, yeah. you know, a deeper meaning of accountability because part of it also means we're responsible for each other. So when I'm accountable to you and you're accountable to me, we become responsible for each other. So, you know, we 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 hear this phrase often like, um, you know, I'm, I really, I'm invested in your success. You know, I want my team to be successful. Um, if that is truly the case, then I'm accountable to them. Yeah. And it's not just, so there is a reciprocity associated with it, but in the context of the rooted leadership framework and the seeing people and the deeply seeing people, it takes on a much more meaningful, much more deeper, deeper application of our traditional notion of accountability. And the reason I got tripped up earlier, I'm going to say one, this one more thing, Chris. This is, I shared this phrase with Chris. I was watching somebody being interviewed and I think they were talking about the political context that we're operating in. And, and this person re- said three words that have resonated with me and they've stuck with me and they're going to become my mantra in, in a sense. And I embody these words, I believe. Truth trust, transparency. Hmm. I believe if, you know, and all of those are part of accountability. If I'm being truthful with you, you're going to trust me. And if you trust me, then I'm going to trust you. I'll be truthful with you. You'll be truthful with me and we'll have transparency. So uh, trust, truth, transparency are things that are really integral to fostering the kind of accountability culture uh, and relationships that we're discussing. Sorry, Chris. No, I don't, don't apologize. Um, you know, as both of you were talking, I, I, a, f- a few things came to mind. And as, as I'm thinking about, you know, where some of the concerns or the questions came from our, you know, our, our new group of leaders around this notion of accountability, um, I think that uh, at least a weakness that I have as a leader, and but there's maybe others relate, is 
sometimes we want a, an immediate answer or an immediate solution. And so when we say something like, stop holding people accountable and start creating accountability, accountable, start creating accountable people. It's well, which, which is it? Because I need to hold these people accountable right now. And so we, it's like we crave an absolute certainty that something has to be a certain way. It has to be black or white and we don't leave any room for a gray area. Um, uh, and maybe it's because we don't like the uncomfortable feeling that it, that it causes with us. But I think, it, you know, a, a skill set as a leader is to be okay with being uncomfortable and, and not knowing, you know, all the answers uh, in the moment. Um, and Allison, you you said this. It's it's it takes time. You know, it's interaction by interaction is what creates accountable people. Um, it doesn't mean that we don't have we don't hold people accountable, but it's not one or the other. Um, it could be uh, it's it's both. You know, it's a process, and so it's not a definitive moment in time. It's a process. And I thought of you know long short to long versus long to short. Um, I think that if all we do is rely upon systems of accountability, you know, that seems to me like a short to long, uh, a, a short to long method, a quick, quick to, you know, uh, we, a quick solution right away, but it and it leads to, you know, uh, problems perhaps down the road. Um, versus if we just really take our time um, doing the right thing, um, creating that culture of accountability. Um, in every interaction that we have and in, in, in trying to create accountable people through first us being accountable. I think that's the best way we create accountable people is when we are the ones ex- being the, the, the example of it, which means we have to live in a vulnerable, authentic way to admit our faults and get out in front of it, which is hard. But if we spend our time doing that down the road, it solves, uh, it either prevents things from even happening or it solves them so much uh, more quickly. and. And so again, you know, just as we spent time with our leaders, there's a lot to be said about accountability and so we're not going to we're not going to solve it all and answer and have all the questions have all the answers I mean and you know in just a matter of a few minutes but really some great food for thought um that we've uh been discussing. And before we move on, we're coming towards the end of our episode. Salam, you have a a remark you want to make or Somebody, somebody was raising their hands. Oh, okay, it was Allison. Yeah, I just saw the corner of my eyes. Somebody raised raised the hand. So yeah, no. As Allison. I was listening to you, you know, I was a lawyer in private practice for ten years, and in that practice, I did mediation. And when you're a mediator, you really you you specialize in healing broken relationships if the parties want, indeed, for that relationship to be healed. And a technique that I ended up learning to teach or offer to participants in mediation. And then later on in organizations where I did team building work, you know, we talk about listening and listening deeply. We forget to talk about, listen to the things that aren't being said. Listen to the things that aren't being said. And in mediation and in team building, what I used to coach participants to do when you're in a conversation with somebody and they're telling you what's important to them or what they're worried about, What I want you to learn how to do is listen for the implication of that and then repeat back the implication. So if you have an employee coming to you saying, I was up all night with my sick child. I I can't do this thing that I was supposed to do today. You're if you're listening for the implication, you know that implication is going to be their fatigue. They're not thinking as sharply as they need to think for that task. 
And so you can respond much more compassionately, which I really appreciate you telling me that. I know that you have in your value system doing your very best. And so let's see what we can do to work with that. And and I stumbled upon this long, long ago. And actually, my husband and I, we've been married 39 years. We were in a really, we've only had maybe three or four arguments in that entire time period. And this one, you know, they're painful when they do come. And when we finally resolved it, I said, what made you change your mind? And he said, because I listened, I was listening to what you weren't saying as much as to what you were saying. And I'll never forget that. And I think that really is brilliant in building relationships at work. Listen to what isn't being said. Listen for the implication. Don't make people spell it out for you. Try to meet them halfway. And that is also part of being accountable as a leader. It's part of creating safety and empathy and compassion. Mm. I love that. Listen to what isn't being said. Writing that down. Um, Thank you, Allison. Uh, you know, we are, we're about, a, about an hour into our recording. We like to keep these right around that time frame. Um, and uh, I wish we could keep talking. Um, you know, we'll have to have a, we, we say this uh, often, but we'll have to have our, our you know, second take at, at, at this again down the road. Uh, you know, how is Allison now? You know, in several months down the road, um, it would be kind of fun. Uh, but we like to end, well, first of all, I always like to throw out some questions out there for anybody that's listening, for leaders to, to consider, or if you're not a leader, just no matter where you're at point in life, some questions to really contemplate on. Um, and then, you know, we like to end with with a, with a kind of a fun question um, for you. Um, but before, uh, before I do any of those things, Salam, what are any of your remarks or thoughts um, before we begin to to wrap up the show, well, I, I and I think this is one of the questions that um, we ask our our guests, and I'm hoping I'm not jumping ahead and taking your question. So <laughs> go ahead. What I was really curious about, um, Allison, is you know it's it's clearly evident that your last seven years at Liberty House have really shaped you and formed you as the leader that you are today. But you've been in many leadership positions over your wonderful career. Um, could you talk about, you know, the, the experiences or the specific milestones perhaps or influencers on you that, that made you the leader that you are today? Hmm. I know we can spend a whole episode on yeah. this, but I think it might be helpful for, for the audience to hear, you know, what experiences shaped your journey, you know, on, on your path to leadership. Yeah. Well, the husband that I just mentioned is one of them. He um, has just been an incredible life partner. Um, when I was in undergrad and in law school, I had professors who gave me the gift of time. They sat down, they listened, they answered all my questions. They gave me reassurance when I was, you know, struggling with self-confidence, all those things. When I was newly out of school and, um, struggling to set up a career in a private practice, I worked with an amazing lawyer who was a mediator who also just gave me the gift of time and he trusted me and I learned so much. Um, 
And then, you know, when I worked at the county as a department head, I had some amazing leaders there. And then my current board chair, who is also uh, um, an alumni of some of the amazing trainings that we've all been through, um, he just blows my mind every conversation. He is so compassionate and so smart and so logical, and he reads me um, incredibly well. And I think it's, he has taken the time to get to know how I tick and he just lets me process through things and gives me good guidance in a way that is so liberating. It's amazing. So I, I just have lots of gratitude for all those leaders. And then of course, my teacher whose favorite phrase was fall down seven times, get up eight. Hmm. That one's a keeper. Allison, thank you. uh, Of, of those individuals, um, you know, I'm sure that many of them have, have seen yet, you know, at some of your, your worst moments and also your best, but of those individuals, what would, you know, who comes to mind that, that maybe has a good idea of, of Allison at her worst and Allison at her best? And what would they, what would they say if they had to recommend you? If they had to recommend me? Yeah. What would they say about you? Uh, she listens. Yeah. I would agree with that hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Every interaction we've had, um, I feel that you listen and and uh, that you, like you said earlier in this episode, that you listen deeply. Um, you know, one of the the key principles of our rooted framework is the soil section, and and the deepest part of our soil is deeply seeing others. And when we when we to, in order, I think in order to deeply see others, we have to actually start to think about life more deeply, and then end up living life more deeply. And when we do that, we start to see others more deeply. We start to listen more deeply. We start to care more deeply. We start to learn more deeply. We start to mm-hmm. to love more deeply. And um, you know, in in my interactions with you, just professionally, you know, I I I feel that um, from you. And uh, one of the things I admire and appreciate about you. Um, so a uh, lot to think about in this episode for you listeners mm-hmm. out there. Uh, some things, uh, you know, to 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 be questioning uh, for you is, uh, you know, one of the hot topics today was accountability. Um, you know, are we being accountable to ourselves first? Um, and if so, it likely leads us to being a little more vulnerable <laughs> because we have to admit our faults and admits admit where we've maybe where we could be better. And if it's leading us to that, are we? Are we following through with it? Um, are we admitting it? And are we um, not just to ourselves, but to those that it's been impacting? So those are some things I think that you can think about. And, and ultimately, you know, using Allison's words from earlier, I think that when we can do that, it leads us to the beauty that can be found in accountability um, in our organizations and with our our teams and the people that we're in relationship with, um, both personally and professionally. So uh, with that, uh, if there's anything else left to be said by either of you, um, please do so. If you have any other last thoughts. I, I just want to say it's always a pleasure. And um, as a community member, I'm, I'm grateful to you and your leadership. And uh, thank you for all the wonderful things that you do in this community and for this community. Oh, thank you. Thank you both. You know, I would just say 
There is plenty of hurt to go around out in the community and in our world. And compassion, empathy, accountability, it takes work. It's an investment and it's worth it. We, we need to be laser focused on the next generation, guiding the little people in our lives, making sure that we are raising and educating children who are capable of empathy. That will make a difference in healing the hurt in this world. And if I had a wish, that would be the wish. So thank you for being professional partners on that journey. Thank you, Allison. Um, it's been a pleasure. Allison's one of our mentors this year to some of our current uh, uh, leaders in our institute. So thank you for that as well. And you're going to be a presenter later this this year to to the group. So you're you're certainly a, a great example of an awesome alumni to Groundwork. So thank you for all all that you do uh, with us and for us in in conjunction with what you do for our community. Uh, so that's that's all for uh, our episode today. Um, again, thanks for tuning in, uh, and we'll catch you next time. You know, per tradition, I share a little bit about what it is that we're doing here and why we started uh, this podcast to begin with. So it all starts with uh, Groundwork, a leadership institute, which we uh, started a couple of years ago. And the whole goal behind starting Groundwork as a completely philanthropic endeavor was to be helpful to our community, essentially raise the tide of leadership in our community now and for many years to come. And so there's great leaders that exist, sure, but we want to be intentional about doing our part in creating and cultivating more uh, for a long time. And we have a few focuses here, and I don't always share this, but you know, it's been a while, so I'm going to share it. But we have three pillars, if you will, three things that uh, they help us measure our success a little bit, but ultimately it's the three things that we want to provide that was missing in our community. And number one was world-class education on what it means to be a leader. Uh, now, of course, there's plenty of resources out there in the world and on the internet and and in books on leadership, but in our community specifically, there's nothing that provides world-class education on leadership. Now, maybe there's some courses you can take at a university, et cetera, but there's nothing that's for you know the community. And so that was the number one thing that we wanted to provide, world-class education on what it means to lead and to be a leader. Number two was to create a mentorship pool. Now, mentorship happens in our community, certainly, but it's kind of organic, you know, in situation by situation, case by case. But there's nowhere to go where you can either become a mentor or be a mentor or get mentored. And we want to create a pool over time that is just a network of leaders and mentors for our community. Uh, and we're really excited about it. And number three, probably the most important, is real world application. If people aren't going through this institute and changing and doing something different and moving the needle in various aspects of their life and their organization and ultimately our community, then why are we doing this? And so that's really important to us is that leaders are applying, that our community is applying these principles that we're bringing to the table. We don't claim to be experts in leadership. Sure, we know a thing or two, but we lean on leaders in our community and leaders out in our country and beyond that to learn from. And so we bring in different speakers and different presenters every month and we learn from their expertise, we learn from their stories and 
one of the key things that we believe in being an institute is we want to become an entity of shared knowledge. And so it was a no-brainer that we should start a podcast. And so that's why we're here. Uh, podcast is a great way to learn from others, to capture it, to document it, and then share it. And so it was obvious to us, hey, we need to do this. And so that is the condensed version, the three-minute version of why we're here and this is and why we're doing what we're doing. And so for those of uh, those of you that are tuning in for the first time, that's what we're all about. For those of you that have been listening for some time, a good reminder of what it is that we're we're aiming towards. And the ultimate goal is we want to improve our community. We believe that change happens a com- one community at a time. And in a community, change happens one organization at a time. And in an organization, it's one leader at a time. And then ultimately one person at a time. 